The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. It's wonderful. Truly excellent. Thank you. Would you care to join us? I don't want to intrude. You're not. I was just leaving anyway. Please, sit down. It really is delicious. I'm glad it pleases you, Commander. I'm not your commander. My name is William. I will call you William if you prefer. I do. When you say commander, you say it like you say sovereign to Maruk. As a servant. You're an excellent commander, but you'd make a poor sovereign. Why is that? Not that I disagree. You're not comfortable with servants. No, I prefer the company of equals. So you treat me as an equal. And you're not comfortable with that. I'm not used to it. I've always been a servant. Not that I'm complaining. The sovereign treats me well. I have all that I could want. What about freedom? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 27th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So just what about freedom? The freedom question is always a blank out for most people because freedom is difficult to concretize in a positive form. Freedom is usually expressed as a negative, as an escape from some former condition of tyranny or burden. So we shouldn't be too surprised when freedom doesn't appear to be a consideration on any of the political agendas of the parties of the left in particular, which happens to be all of the parties in the Ontario legislature. Today, the rubber hits the road as we take the theory of left and right, along with all of the other principles that we've been discussing on a number of our past few shows, and illustrate for you just exactly how those purely leftist principles manifest themselves in reality, straight from the horse's mouths, as they say. Don't forget, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Well, today I'm going to be using the province of Ontario as my Exhibit A. (laughs) That's E-H with a question mark and exclamation point, I think. I plan to share with you how the left side of the political spectrum sounds when it is pursuing its, what I am calling, fascist and socialist policies and what they actually say to the public that clearly demonstrates these intentions and these philosophies. So over the course of our discussion today, we'll be touching upon the monstrously democracy-destroying legislation that took effect on January 1st, on the government's proposed minimum wage increase, on the politics and science of climate change, carbon tax credits, carbon trading, and of course, the really big dilemma for Ontario voters. The fact that Patrick Brown, 
and Ontario's Progressive Conservative Party are a mirror image of Wynne's Liberal Party of Ontario, which now rules the province with a majority government. Now, it has been difficult for me to broach this topic because, in a way, it makes me feel like I'm in the twilight zone, seriously. And in another way, it scares the hell out of me. That a development of such magnitude should completely escape either the notice or interest of the greater media. You know, in less than a year from now, Ontarians will be headed to the polls in an election that will be completely different from any other Ontario election that preceded it. And as usual, the media, you know, is sort of aware of the facts, but not the story, nor the long-term implications of these facts on the fundamental freedoms of each and every person living in Ontario. Now, because I am the president and the chief financial officer of an officially registered political party in the province of Ontario, earlier in the year I received the following notice and order from Elections Ontario. The bureaucracy set up to enforce and regulate electoral legislation and to oversee the electoral process during elections and by-elections. In the next election, 2018, coming up in Ontario, Taxpayers, for the first time, will be paying for the votes of those who vote. If you live in Ontario, when you vote in the next Ontario election, your vote will cost Ontario taxpayers, even the non-voters, X amount of cents per vote per quarter period. It adds up to millions, as we have already reviewed in the past, that will be handed over not to the Ontario government, but to Ontario's officially registered parties in proportion to the votes each received relative to the others and subject to minimum threshold. Now, I have to be honest with you, and I'm a little embarrassed to have to admit to you today that, yes, Freedom Party itself has been a a recipient of a small piece of this stolen loot. Officially registered political parties will receive direct cash payments from the forced political contributions made by taxpayers based on the proportionate number of votes cast by voters. So the voters are actually forcing taxpayers... I say taxpayers, non-voters, everyone in the province, to pay to the political parties of their choices. So you can see there's no such thing as a wasted vote in the upcoming election because every vote is worth money either to or away from a political party. But here's the big one, and this is the one you're going to have a hard time wrapping your head around because it changes everything. Freedom of association for political purposes is now against the law. And this is one of the toughest issues I have ever had to face, not only because it does indeed affect me personally, but because it's so unbelievably Hitlerian fascist that one wonders at the mindset of anyone who could even possibly consider such an offense to the very nature of democracy. But today in Ontario, of all places, it just takes a Kathleen Wynne government with the full support of every other member in the Ontario legislature to pass this law. It was Bill 2. We talked about it in detail on this program in the past. Warning about all these things, but never really seeing how bad it could get in practice. So as we head into the next general or provincial election, Freedom Party has been almost literally bound and gagged by the Ontario government and prevented from acting as a political party. And as we've already learned from past experience, from participating even in an Ontario by-election, even though our candidate met all the requirements and filed all the required registrations on time in accordance with provincial rules, they told us we couldn't run. And with the exception of one or two single media members who happened to know us personally, no member of the media even blinked an eye about this. 
when we sent out our media releases about this gross and unconscionable violation of the democratic process. It was very clear. We thought it couldn't get any worse than that until we were shoved the devil in the details of Bill 2, which we publicly criticized and warned of these very things, again to a blind, deaf, and dumb media, which obviously doesn't give a damn crap about democracy or community participation or all those democratic rights they so loudly scream about if they're for the left. Here's the regulation that we have tossed at us as political parties. Quote, there are restrictions at fundraising events where there is a contribution portion included in the ticket or price entry charge. At this time, the attendance restriction applies to leaders of registered political parties, registered candidates, registered leadership candidates. If there's no contribution portion included in the ticket price, the attendance restrictions do not apply. If any money raised is in excess of the amount required for cost recovery, it must be paid to the chief electoral officer, end quote. Sounds pretty technical, doesn't it? But it literally is telling us that we cannot associate with each other, my own friends, my own members in my own party, if we're raising money. <laughs> Can you believe it? How dare anyone, especially the government, tell any Canadian or Ontarian with whom they may associate for political purposes? It's unbelievable to me. How dare you, Kathleen Wynne, Patrick Brown, Andrea Horwath, you're all complete fascist dictators for allowing this to happen. Let me be very clear, ladies and gentlemen, this officially makes Ontario fascist. Every dinner and speaking event hosted by Freedom Party in the, you know, from 1984 to last year, which you can find online right now, would, if held in 2017, be entirely illegal. Why? Because... Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever was in attendance. He didn't even speak at all of them. He was just sitting in the room. That alone is grounds for deregistering the party, for fining Paul, for who knows, maybe we have to go to jail. Because other Freedom Party candidates like Al Gretzky and Salim Mansour were also in attendance at Freedom Party functions. Oh my goodness, Freedom Party candidates at Freedom Party functions. This has to be against the law, and it is, as of this writing today. So when you cannot even associate with your own members and supporters of your own private association, which is what a political party is, any concept of democracy has long been over and done with. The entire political landscape has been changed overnight by the passage of Bill 2, with the taxpayer forced dues paid to political parties, with bans and restrictions on private political activities and advertising, including what you do online, and a whole host of prohibitions and restrictions that have yet to be discovered by those who have already fallen victim to them without knowing it. Electoral rules in Ontario have changed in a big way, with the government in power dictating everything from what is allowed to be discussed in political forums to the most fundamental violations of freedom of association itself. They have basically criminalized political activity. Thank you, Wynne, Brown, and Horwath. So welcome to the new Ontario, yours to discover, as all the values upon which this country, this province, and the West in general have just been tossed aside for tyrannical ends. So today I have selected some highly edited excerpts and portions of various interviews with government officials, politicians, and others over the course of our show today, which I have regarded as particularly significant. Okay, And we'll, we'll post links to the complete interviews because we've edited them down to the points that I'm trying to focus on today.
They were originally broadcast on various local AM radio stations in my area, and I think it's far past time to really listen to and understand just what our elected politicians are actually saying to us. Over a number of recent Just Right broadcasts, we've been looking at left and right and demonstrating how today's so-called conservatives have drifted to the left. But you heard it in our words. What does the left sound like and say in their own words? And how does the so-called right wing constantly end up on the left side of the spectrum supporting what should be their opponents? Today we'll be giving a lot of time to those voices, the kinds of voices who would likely never appear on this show because I might say to them what I've been saying to you and will say after listening to some of these extraordinary revelations as expressed by the voices of the left themselves. Now, on this side of our upcoming bumper, you'll be hearing the voices of CFPL AM 980's Andrew Lawton in conversation with Ontario's Minister of Labor, Kevin Flynn. Now, here's a guy who preaches total fascism. See if you can detect it as aired this past July 10th. And on the other side of the bumper, Andrew Lawton again in conversation with Ontario Progressive Conservative Party leader Patrick Brown on the following day. Both are clearly in favor of raising Ontario's minimum wage, being Brown and Flynn, which is yet more evidence that fascism is the political philosophy of both parties on this issue and issues like it. So what's this consultation process really aiming to do here? Well, what it is, I think it's uh, beginning the uh, the culmination of a process that began about two years ago when we asked two very well-respected people in the field of employment law and in labor law to go out and consult with the people of Ontario because we knew that the last time we'd taken a look at the Employment Standards Act or the Labor Relations Act was in the mid-90s. We'd never looked at the act at the same time. And we knew that the world of work had changed quite significantly in those last 20, 25 years when you think of the impact of, of uh, things like technology, for example. So as a result of a report that, uh, that came back from the advisors, we turned that after uh, some consultation with a variety of parties across Ontario, we turned that into what we think is a very progressive piece of legislation that we're proposing to, uh, to we've introduced it to the House, we're proposing that it pass in the fall with the blessing of the House. What we do want to do, though, is we want to hear from the people of Ontario as to what they think of this, and we know there'll be a variety of views. And uh, we've taken the uh, unusual opportunity to go out for uh, committee hearings after first reading. So they will come back. They will make any changes that perhaps they think should be made. This is a committee of all three parties in the legislature. And then we'll be, uh, we'll be taking it out again to the people of Ontario uh, after second reading as well. But when you look at things like, uh, like wage equalization or when you look at things like sick days or vacation pay and employment standards violations, those types of things, you realize that really uh, the legislation was written for the world of work in the 1990s. And as much as we said to the advisors, don't deal with minimum wage because we think we have a pretty good process in place where what we would do is uh, we would tell business April the 1st uh, what the uh, consumer price index had been the previous year and they would implement an increase to the minimum wage uh, in October of that year. The process worked very, very well, but what we found is uh, we couldn't go anywhere without people talking about uh, the complete inadequacy of the minimum wage for somebody to be able to uh, to work 35 or 40 hours a week uh, in the province of Ontario, but somehow at the end of the day still find themselves living in poverty. But I think the underlying principle is that there's a number of people, Andrew, in our province that are doing very, very well these days. Economic growth, as I said, is, you know, you know is 
leading the G7. But you mentioned in that answer, though, Minister, the small business owners that are concerned about whether they can make this minimum wage hike, make it really balance out on their budgets. And you said that you're prepared to work with them and and tell them how. But the ones that come to you and say, I don't think I can do this, I'm against this minimum wage increase, are you open to listening to them in the public consultation? And if they really are the overwhelming voice changing your government's approach to the minimum wage hike? I don't believe for one minute, Andrew, that paying people enough money to keep them out of poverty and having a healthy competitive business are mutually exclusive. In but, the but yes or no, Ontario. Minister, is this up for debate or is this a consultation well, process debate, theatrical? Andrew. We're doing a consultation around the problems. If the consultation comes back and it says, you know, we need some changes here, we need some changes here, or if we get, if we get a recommendation from the committee in that regard, always open. We're always open to amendments. We've been an open government, and I think we've been very, very flexible over the years. But the underlying the underlying concern here is that people in this province are working uh, what used to be considered, I think, a trainee wage, uh, you know, somebody that was in school, somebody that was making some money for camp or to buy some sports equipment. Finding now that uh, 30% of the people that work in the province of Ontario make less than $15 an hour. From that 30%, when you look at the age group there, uh, over half of those people are between the ages of 25 and 64. So that's adults who are trying to make ends meet on a wage that we know is below the poverty level. How can a small business that has a razor-thin margin weather what is an increase of, in some sectors where minimum wage earnings are the norm for employees, what is uh, an increase by over a third of their labor costs potentially? Well, that's, a, that's the, uh, the challenge that is on the table, that somehow, and I don't know where, it may have been in the days of Mike Harris, perhaps, somehow it became okay uh, to, to work 35 or 40 hours a week in the province of Ontario, get paid a legal wage, but somehow not be able to, to, uh, to live out of poverty. That's a cost of living challenge, though, is it not? That's right. We've got to rebalance those things. We've got to make sure that somebody that is making the minimum wage, somebody in Ontario, Andrew, I hope you'd agree with me, somebody that works in the province of Ontario 35 or 40 hours a week, whether that be a full-time job or two part-time jobs or a part-time and a full-time job, should be able to live out of poverty, should be able to afford the very basics of life. Right now in the province of Ontario, that's not the case. We need to make that right. What's happened, though, I think, is that somehow the business models of some of the organizations that are paying minimum wage still have come to rely on that. So we need to work through the challenges of that. And we're quite prepared to sit down with business and do that. On the show yesterday, actually, Minister Kevin Flynn, the Labour Minister, said that he was hoping this would be a cross-partisan effort. He was talking about the committees having PC representatives, NDP representatives, and Liberal representatives, and that he said anything is on the table. What would you like to see come of these reforms as the government really looks to Ontarians to say, all right, these are the key priorities that you have for us? When I hear the Chambers of Commerce, when I hear small businesses, they're saying, of course we want higher wages, but you have to give notice. It's too much too, uh, too much uh, all at once. You know, a 32% change on the bottom line on labor cost almost overnight um, is going to put a lot of jobs at peril. Policies like the overnight increase in the minimum wage that Kathleen Wynne was against herself two years ago, all of a sudden she adopts, borrowing $93 billion on a hydro scheme to get $21 billion in relief that makes no sense to our bottom line 
they're doing because it's an election year. They're they're searching headlines given how low they are in the polls. And unfortunately, it hurts all of Ontario. You're going to pay for this. If you're saying this is too much too fast, would you put the brakes on that? Yeah, I, I believe you have to give proper notice to our job creators. And what I'm hearing uh, around the province is it's too much too soon uh, and they want a more gradual implementation period. And um, yeah, I've, I've got a lot of sympathy for that uh, um, uh, for that concern. And so I've said uh, that it should be done at a more incremental uh, pace. Uh, I certainly think we all want to get higher wages, but there's no reason that we can't work with the business community to uh, do so at a, at a pace that allows them to adapt uh, and, and, and keep jobs at the same time. And under a Patrick Brown government, will the minimum wage go up to $15 an hour or will it stay at 14 pending a more long-term strategy? Well, I'm certainly not committed to any uh, overnight uh, increases, so um, I'm uh, not signing on for, for this plan. Um, I believe you have to give uh, proper notice uh, to our job creators. And so I'm going to make sure that we do this at a pace that gives proper notice to job creators, that is more I- incremental, that we're all in this together, that will be collaborative with employees and employers. Um, and I'm certainly not uh, signing on to Kathleen Wynne's plan. So what is the appropriate time frame to put an increase of this nature into effect? Well, I think there's a few factors that you, you look at is one, the conversation with the business community. And you know, when I'm speaking with the chambers and CFIB, no one's saying they don't want to get a higher wages. Mm-hmm. That They say it just needs to be more of a, a gradual implementation. What we just heard before the bumper was the very maximum philosophy of the liberals as expressed by Kevin Flynn. What we heard on this side of the bumper was the very minimum philosophy of the conservatives as expressed by Patrick Brown. You know, principle and philosophy will always rule over pragmatism, economics, and science, even if all the arguments are correct or all of them are wrong on both sides of any given debate. You have to argue principle. Kevin Flynn did argue principle. And the principle he was telling us loud and clear when it came to the whole minimum wage hearings is, hello, it's not about minimum wages. Holy cow, none of this is about minimum wages. He argues that Labor Relations Act and Employment Standards Act Act haven't been reviewed since the 90s and that the world of work has changed quite significantly, citing technology. Well, no, the world of work did not change significantly. What changed is the philosophy in Queen's Park. It's just moving more and more rapidly to the left. As proof, he, uh, he says, we have created a very progressive piece of legislation. Now see, here Flynn is being quite clear and truthful. His legislation is totally left. It's communist, socialist, fascist. That's what the word progressive means, and he's totally correct. But here's what he talks about when asked about minimum wage. He doesn't talk about minimum wage. He says, when you look at things like wage equalization, vacation pay, sick days, employment standard violations, all, quote, written for the 90s, of course. And, he, and here, here it is. Here's the admission. We told our advisors don't deal with a minimum wage because, of course, he says we have a good handle on that, meaning that the forced fascist wage increases are already automatic, so why bother having to raise it again? The process worked very well, but we couldn't go anywhere without people talking about the complete inadequacy of minimum wages for someone to be able to work without living in poverty. Now listen to this. Pure communism and Marxism in stark clarity. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. Although even that's bastardization of the original. 
Quote, I think the underlying principle is that there are a number of people in our province that are doing very well these days, end quote, meaning, of course, those with ability. Now, when confronted by the prospect of those businesses who might not be able to afford the forced wage increase, the minister let the cat out of the bag. Quote, somehow, from the days of Mike Harris, <laughs> Mike Harris, can you believe it? Now, of course, to him, Mike Harris is symbolic of the right, although he was never any such thing. But he goes, it became okay to work 35, 40 hours a week in the province of Ontario, get paid a legal wage, but somehow not be able to live out of poverty. When it came up that that was a cost-of-living challenge, he replied, well, we've got to rebalance those things. Make sure that someone who's making minimum wage should be able to live out of poverty, should be able to afford the basics of life. And right now in the province of Ontario, that is not the case. Wow. What a condemnation of his own government's record, which has been in power for two consecutive majority terms and still blames Mike Harris for the poverty that Ontario is experiencing today. Here, listen to this. Quote, what has happened is that somehow the business models of some of the organizations that are paying minimum wage still have come to rely on that. So we need to work through the challenges of that. We're quite prepared to sit down with businesses and do that. Holy cow, that's worse than Big Brother. You know, every time they drive the wages up, everything else goes up. They're not, they're not doing anybody any favors by this, never have. They know they're causing unemployment, they know they're hurting the poor, and they're consciously doing it. And don't you think for a second that they don't know it? Of course, the glaring and most fundamental question that no one asks ministers of the government when they want to force employers to be responsible for the economic condition of their employees, which is none of their business at all, why doesn't the government do it if it's a problem? That's a big question. Why not force all taxpayers, you and me, to share the burden? Why do you have to do it to the employer? If they're paying minimum wage and they need more, we'll top it up with taxpayer dollars. As ridiculous as every wealth you know, redistribution scheme is in the end. I, I'm just throwing this out there. Because if they really cared about the poor, that is what the government would be doing. But it's not about the poor. And it's not about minimum wage. Hello, knocking on the door, anybody there? Flynn prefers fascism to communism in this case, since helping the poor is not his objective. You know, that's his climate change distraction. The goal is to control every facet of the economy and of business, from production to consumption. It's a formula for eternal poverty, which Flynn pretends to be surprised about. I have no respect for the guy, I'm sorry, none. Every word uttered from his mouth that we just heard, I regard as moral obscenity. Just so we're clear on this, okay? You know, whenever I talk about poverty, my mother always reminds me, Christ said the poor will always be with us. <laughs> to which I respond, yeah, Mom, but he didn't say poverty would always be with us. Those are two different things. One relates to an individual who's capable of being helped, the other to a social, political, economic condition brought about by a lack of proper governance. And if we've got poverty in this province, there's one source, and it's in Queen's Park. Forced wealth redistribution plans from each according to his ability to each according to his need turns what was formerly just a few poor people who could have been helped in so many numerous ways you couldn't count them all. Instead, the government chooses force, moves to the left, 
and turns everything into a condition of poverty. You see it everywhere in the world. Look at South America. You know, look at Venezuela. Look at all the countries going down. Look at even the Western countries falling into debt because they're trying to solve poverty. Then, of course, Patrick Brown. Boy, doesn't he, doesn't he have some options to offer for us? <laughs> like we've said, he had nothing to say. Nothing. Give notice. Uh, don't want overnight increases in minimum wage. Got to give proper notice. Gradual implementation period. Work with the business community. And Brown goes, I'm not committed to any overnight increases. Proper notice. Got to do with proper notice. We're all in this together. I'm not signing on the Kathleen Wynne's plan. Well, she just did. What the hell did he say that's any different from Wynne? Nothing. I'm going to do it slower. How many times in the past 30 years or so have I been shouting that conservatives are just socialists and fascists who move toward each of those ideologies at a slower pace. Patrick Brown is utterly pathetic as a party leader of any political party, but he's perfectly suited for the progressive conservatives, whose oxymoronic party name already betrays the inherent contradictions and weakness in the philosophy and ideology upon which their party is built. Minimum wage laws at any level are specifically a fascist measure, both in theory and in practice. And if you don't like the word, tough for you. Get over it. Because if you don't get over it, it'll get over you. It's coming. My parents lived through it. Europeans lived through it. We're not immune. And that gang in, in Queen's Park is making sure we won't be. Like it or not, minimum wage laws violate the rights to life, liberty, and property. And that's a fact, an inconvenient truth. This doesn't help anyone, nor does it address poverty. Minimum wage laws create poverty, but that's an economic reality. You know, it's merely the consequence of the moral shortcoming. And anti-capitalism is not about a tax grab. It's about things like college of trades, minimum wages, labor laws, fighting poverty, guaranteed minimum income schemes, carbon taxes, fighting climate, you know, that kind of thing. These are all euphemisms for total state control of the economy. Of course, the anti-capitalism elephant in the room is the entire global warming and climate change controversy, that ultimate distraction from the sinister intentions of the left. So on this side of our upcoming bumper, we'll be hearing Lori Goldstein in conversation with CJBK AM 1290's Al Coombs from that station's broadcast of July 17th, and on the other side of the bumper from the same broadcast, Al Coombs in conversation with yours truly. I write about this a lot, and I'm not a climate denier. I believe that man-made climate change is real. But what I also know is that the stuff they are proposing is not going to get us anywhere near to the reductions they keep saying. Like, you know, Catherine Wynne's um, cap-and-trade plan, Rachel Notley's carbon tax, Trudeau backing it all up with the national carbon price. If you just do the math, and I have, you know that those measures are not going to get us to anywhere near Canada's commitments in the Paris Climate Accord. Even if we got to those limits, even if we got to them, if every country on earth met their targets in the Paris Accord, all that would do, according to the science, is doom us to catastrophic global warming. <laughs> and so what they're really doing is it's a cash grab. That's all it is. Well, you know the things that would really lower emissions? Our governments aren't even talking about those. And the reason is, while they're taking our money for no good purpose through carbon pricing, they want us to think that deindustrializing a country like Canada 
is easy. It's not easy. It's hard. And what I like about this study is that it gives people an idea of here's what you would have to do if you were serious, and even that won't achieve the reductions that we need. Does everybody from Justin Trudeau to the opposition leaders, let's be fair, not so I'm make it partisan, right. uh, to the conservatives, to Al Gore, uh, to uh, who's the other guy, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, right. do, are they, never mind what they say about global warming, are they acting like people in their lifestyles who honestly believe that we face a cataclysmic existential threat from global warming in the next 50 years. Because if you honestly believe that, and you were a politician, wouldn't you be setting an example? And, and my philosophy is always, when it comes to politicians, forget about what they say. Look at what they do. We've got a couple minutes left uh, for uh, Bob. Bob Metz, we always welcome your phone calls in, uh, Bob. There, uh, I've got about a minute and a half. Do you want to take it? Yeah, that's all I need. All right. You know, I, I disagree with um, Lori Goldstein in one respect. That um, you, you, no, they are doing what they're saying, and they're doing what they plan to do. The whole thing is not about carbon. You know, I've got a copy of Naomi Klein's um, "This Changes Everything" book in my hand, and on the back cover, let me quote. Forget everything you know about climate change. The really inconvenient truth is that it's not about carbon. It's about capitalism. End of story. That's what it's been about since day one. Well, and, and, and Lori did allude to that, saying that most of this is a cash grab because a lot of it is done, all right, I will be well, no, serious. No, 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 no. There's lots of cash grabs out there. Taxation is a cash grab, but it doesn't have to be anti-capitalistic. That, these are two different things. And the destruction of jobs and businesses and opportunities, especially for the people on the low end of the scale in this country, is a direct consequence of this. And carbon is not a pollutant. Carbon does not warm the earth. Carbon is a consequence of warming. And, and this is known by all the climatologists. I, I, I've interviewed many of them, and I have yet to find one who disagrees with that. This is completely political. The science has been thrown out the window, and for anyone to take the carbon story seriously is to say, you swallowed the Kool-Aid, my friend. All right, Pop, we've got to leave it there. Thanks, Thanks. so much for the call. Appreciate it. Um, and and I, I love when it comes to the, the discussion of climate change, because if there, there is no, no medium when it comes to the idea of climate change. If you are of the argument, we need to entirely... We need to entirely invest in our uh, in our planet and make sure that climate change is no more because we believe that this is man-made and, and that we can make a difference. Then you need to do what this study says. Forgo meat. Get down to one car. No more flying. But we're not seeing anybody really do that. Which means that we then say, okay, well, what are the little things that we can do? Well, does it matter? If the little things don't add up to, to making enough change, why bother doing them in the first place? You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to our financial supporters who make it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there... 
Be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived not only for your listening enjoyment and convenience, but also as a record of our dedication, consistency, and principled approach to the discussion of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. There is an observation made by Al Coombs that he just made there that I hear almost all talk show hosts of all political stripes generally chime in common, that, quote, when it comes to the discussion of climate change, there is no medium, no middle of the road, end quote. You hear the same thing said about any polarized issue, you know, particularly about Donald Trump, for heaven's sakes. But one thing this illustrates is a principle that we raised last week, that there is no middle of the road or middle position between left and right, because there isn't. You either make one choice or the other. Anything in between is either indecisiveness and you're not even on the road or some combination of the two. As observed by Dr. Jordan Peterson in Just Right's YouTube video that was released last week, he asked an interesting question about whether the matter of political disagreement and the polarity of strong opposing political and philosophic views was merely a matter of opinion. Or is there some more objective truth that can be arrived at, and of course, he correctly concluded the latter. So when someone, like on the left, counters any support or positive statement that I might make, say, about Donald Trump, telling me that when it comes to Trump, people are religiously bound to one side or the other, you know, that's kind of akin to an insult, and I think it's meant as such. When I support someone's words or actions, it is not because I'm religiously glued to the individual in question, although that can accrue over time if a person's consistent, one way or the other, bad or good, but to the ideas, the the ideals, the, the actions, the principles that that person has been associated with. And it's also possible to judge a person or idea by the enemies of that person or idea. And that's a powerful influencer. We also heard Lori Goldstein just speaking in that previous clip before I put my two bits in. Uh, All that it is is a cash grab, he argues. Well, if that's all it is, why go through all the extra trouble when when all you'd have to do is raise taxes on any issue, on anything you wanted? Remember the real goal behind the minimum wage issue? It's not just another tax grab, and it's not just about helping the poor. It's about control. Now, he hinted at that when he talked about how difficult it is to completely de-industrialize Canada, suggesting it's not easy. However, de-industrializing the country is not the objective. (laughs) Taking over industry is. Just like Hitler's fascism in the 1930s Europe, who, by the way, also passed electoral reforms along the very lines of those that we just discussed earlier as passed by Ontario's legislature. He did all that in the 1930s. Now, the study to which Lori Goldstein was referring to was, of course, a UBC PhD student, Seth Wins, and Professor Kimberly Nichols' study made at Sweden's Lund University, which you can see uh, covered on page NP1 of July 13's London Free Press, and I'm sure in a National Post of the same day. You know, he says it gives people an idea of what, what, what you would have to do if they were serious about fighting climate change. And he said, my philosophy is that when it comes to politicians, forget about what they say, look at what they do. Well, I totally disagree with the first half of that philosophy, ignoring the fact that, you know, it's not really a philosophy in in the real sense of the discipline, but I get the point. But with the notion that we should not listen to what our politicians are telling us. 
I disagree. I think you should listen very carefully because when it comes to their constituents and their own plans, I mean, they lie about their opponents and they lie about a lot of things. But on these points, they usually tell the truth because they're the only points on which they can be held accountable at the polls. Ugly though that truth so often turns out to be. But they just use language and words that they create themselves to express their ideas and intentions and policies in ways that will be misunderstood by most in a positive way, right? That's the first point, that politicians rarely out, outrightly lie when it comes to those kinds of things. Second, most people never really know what our politicians are doing and have no way of knowing, except for those isolated cases that might become newsworthy. And third, you know, more people regularly hear from politicians in the news and advertising. And what they hear are promises and vague notions of democratic representations, which mean different things to different people. Now, I fully appreciate that Lori Goldstein has taken a position in his editorial wherein he is exposing the sheer hypocrisy of those who advocate fight, fighting climate change in the political ways being proposed. It's a point worth making, but remember, with what end in mind? Simply to suggest that to achieve the carbon reduction targets necessary would require more drastic measures? Come on, Lori, please, don't give the fascists any more ideas. They might act on them if they don't already intend to. Don't, don't, don't be saying that. Just trying to emphasize a point. Do listen to what your politicians are saying and take heed. You heard what they just said about minimum wages. Listen to Patrick Brown. They're, they're screaming it loud and clear. People don't want to hear it. Since the day I first got involved in politics back in the 1980s, it has been glaringly clear that our politicians have virtually always announced their intentions before acting on them. The problem is that the public did not hear or understand, owing in great part to many of the confusions we've been ch challenging about the left and right polarities. Bill Davis, a progressive conservative party leader of the province, was a complete ideologue of the left. I've already shared with this audience the editorial I wrote back in 1983 that ran with the headline, Bill Peterson and David Davis, leaders of the same party, referring, of course, to PC leader Bill Davis and liberal leader David Peterson at the time. So how did I know that they were traveling in the same leftward direction? Because I took the time to understand philosophy and how it works. So please do listen to your politicians. If you don't know that the word, quote-unquote, progressive means socialism or fascism or communism of the left, then anything that they say after the use of that word will be totally lost on you. When Barack Obama first assumed the presidency of the United States, within the first days of his presidency, I called the shots perfectly about what to expect under his administration on this show. And I said at the time, and I'm still saying today, that he was about as anti-American a president as I have ever witnessed in my lifetime. And how did I determine this? I listened to him. I understood all of the words being used philosophically, which is the only way possible to understand the greater picture of just about anything. We're in for a shock with Ontario Hydro, we warned way back in the early 80s, and we were right. We based our case entirely on the facts and on what politicians were telling us, which at that time were, in fact, complete lies and misrepresentations. But there are times when lies and misrepresentations especially when weighed against known facts and existing alternatives, are the key to discovering the greater truth. Now, everything I've been telling you has been archived in various places online. 
And for me personally, the past 30 years has been a test tube demonstration of the rightness of being on the right, even though that wasn't exactly where I started when I began my own trip in the right, right direction. But I digress. Here's the point. Do listen to your politicians, but learn to understand their language before you listen, especially if they're coming from the left. Otherwise, you won't have a clue to what they're really telling you. One of the reasons Donald Trump got elected president was because the public did not need to learn the language of the establishment in order to clearly understand what Trump was saying, although the establishment pretended they didn't. In fact, in this post-election period, it is the establishment media that is unable to grasp the plain and simple language that the president is using to communicate directly with the people. Kind of funny, don't you think? <laughs> Coming up next, on this side of the bumper, once again, Andrew Lawton, but this time in conversation with someone who's actually pointed in the right direction when it comes to the climate change issue, and that is climatologist Tim Ball, who has been creating some controversy in this country over this issue. As heard on Andrew's June 6th broadcast, and on the other side, just a final reminder of Patrick Brown's true leanings and why Ontario has no representative on the right whatsoever sitting in the legislature. The Paris Agreement, um, well, the, the aim was to reduce global temperature by two degrees Celsius. But uh, that assumes that that's a problem, and that assumes that it hasn't been warmer than that in the past. So, yeah, the, the left can't agree because um, they don't, uh, the, the, the science behind it is not there, and it is a political agreement as part of an attempt to control the, the entire world economy. Who is it that benefits from this agreement? Because that's the one thing, whenever there's a bad deal, you always have to look at who is it that's coming out on top after it. Well, the people that benefit from it are the ones that want total government control. I mean, this was what Maurice Strong, the good Canadian, who was the main architect of all of this, was to uh, establish control over energy and, and uh, therefore control industry and control um, the, uh, the world economy. Uh, he, as, as in an interview with um, Elaine Dewar, who was a superb uh, reporter, for the uh, Hamilton Spectator, in an interview with him, she came away after five days saying that he's using the climate and environmental issue to uh, set up a one-world government, and and uh, and so that's the benefit. The other benefit beneficiaries, of course, are all of the companies like Elon Musk, and I'm glad that he kept to his word and and quit the Trump campaign. But Musk's company was receiving over 80% of government subsidies to build these cars. The people that exploited all of this, of course, uh, stood to benefit to make millions. And then we've got our old friend Al Gore, who's saying that he needs another $15 trillion to save the planet. So this is the, this is the hypocrisy of these people, of course, that they claim uh, it, it isn't about the money uh, and, and in a way, they're right. They want the power, but they also know that the money comes with the power. And this is one of the things that bothers me here, because so often when people are looking at, uh, for example, let's take the way you've been treated and other people that are in that category to uh, the alarmists as, as so-called deniers here. People will often look to, you know, that where the, the research is being funded and granted, etc. People never apply that same level of criticism to the people who are actually profiting from this narrative. No, well, of course, the, the, one of the things that's well known uh, in, in the philosophy circles about different forms of argument is that, uh, that if you're starting to lose the argument on the facts, 
you start to attack the person. It's called ad hominem, mm-hmm. uh, the old t- phrase. And so um, they 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 knew. First of all, they knew that most of the public would not understand how they were corrupting the science. But they also knew that the few of us that did know what they were saying and doing were easily marginalized. First of all, uh, the attacks were all paid by the oil companies, and of course, today I never received a nickel. I'm still waiting for the check. And, and then the, uh, the second uh, attempt was to say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, and, and you're, uh, you know, you're not in favor of saving the children or the planet. And that's one of the giveaways. The minute that they start to attack the individual or they start to use these wider, oh, the sky is falling, and if you don't believe me, uh, it's going to collapse and it's going to be your fault, uh, that, that's a sure sign of, of uh, the, the argument is political and not science-based. And to bring it back to that question of science, you said here that it's a flawed premise that there is an imperative that the world has to reduce temperature by two degrees Celsius. That's the premise on which this accord was based. Why is that flawed or, in your view, missing the bigger picture? Well, it's missing the bigger picture because what, what they did was, when, once they decided that their political objective was to identify CO2 as the byproduct of industry that was causing runaway global warming. And, and again, Maurice Strong talked about that. He said the problem for the planet are the industrialized nations, and isn't it our responsibility to get rid of them? Well, they then set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was designated to identify uh, the causes of climate change. But what people didn't realize was they were only asked to look at the human causes of climate change, which, of course, allowed them then to ignore uh, major greenhouse gases like water vapor, which is 95% of the greenhouse effect, and focus only on CO2. And and uh, you ask people, what, what are the greenhouse gases? And you look at ads that the, the Canadian government putting out, they only identify CO2 as the only greenhouse gas. It's, it's only 4%. But the idea was that once you could demonize CO2, then you could use that to control industry and, and to control the output of it. But, but CO2, and they, they, by the way, they assumed that if CO2 increases, the temperature will increase. The only place that that happens is in their computer models. All of the records that we've got that show uh, temperature increase, temperature increases before CO2, not after. Whether you look at the ice core records or uh, you show me any, I've got hundreds of the records. All of them show that, that temperature increases before CO2. So the fundamental assumption they make is flawed. But that didn't matter. They knew they could, that, that they could swamp the public on that. And, and of course, uh, they then did a classic circular argument. They wrote computer models that said if CO2 increases, the temperature will increase. They then ran the computer model and said, oh, look, we increased CO2 and the temperature went up. Oh, that proves we're right. And, and I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, and, and in the meantime, of course, they ignore the fact that the, the world is cooling down, as it has since 1998, and uh, it's caused by, by a reduction in the sun. But they don't look at the sun because that, uh, humans don't have any control over that. And, and so this is the, the way that it was set up. And, and uh, it, as I said, what they did was they created the science that they needed to uh, achieve their political agenda.
started yesterday uh, on on greenhouses as 2,900 acres in southwestern Ontario. Great industry. Good jobs for southwestern Ontario. That whole corridor, London to Windsor. And with Kathleen Wynn's cap and trade right now, the the sector is on their heels. Where there's carbon pricing in other, other jurisdictions, the greenhouse industry is exempt. Kathleen Wynne seems to be content to let these jobs leave Ontario. I don't think that's acceptable. We need to keep that investment uh, in Ontario. And that's why we started um, at Cecilia Acres in Kingsville. But there's a company there, 15 acres, and they're going to be paying almost 100000 in in carbon taxes. And, that, and that, that's, their, that's their margin of profit. And, and he said to us, Chip Stockwell, the owner, said, how do I stay in Ontario? The... Liberals, in response to your events yesterday, had said that your carbon tax is, in their words, greenhouse hurting. They said your plan will cost families and businesses four times more without a guarantee of reductions. The reality is, uh, there is two billion. Their 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 carbon tax is a two billion dollar uh, revenue tool for the province. Uh, I'm going to give every single cent back to the people. They want two billion dollars more for their pet projects. I'm not paying much attention to the diversion of, of liberal attacks. They know their record. They know jobs are leaving Ontario. They know this is simply another cash grab for their government. My focus is going to be entirely on keeping jobs in Ontario, keeping investment uh, um, in Ontario. That's what this is about, to make sure we get Ontario back on track. Again, simply pathetic on the part of Patrick Brown, and so misleading. You note that Brown did not say he would end the $2 billion revenue tool. What the hell is a revenue tool? What he said instead, and has been saying all along since his out-and-out support for carbon taxation, is that he will redistribute that money, in this case, to the businesses that are leaving the province in the hopes of keeping them here. Wealth redistribution, no different than the liberals of the left who pretend to distribute wealth to the poor, whereas conservatives pretend to distribute it to business and bring prosperity to the province. That's the difference between all their wealth redistribution schemes, and that's why conservatives are associated with business and liberals are associated with labor and the poor. Now, a friend of mine passed on to me a letter, an email letter, sent out by Patrick Brown on July 20th, inviting people to watch a live stream of his speech in which he was giving his reasons for running. And in the letter, it said, quote, I'm running to be Premier of Ontario because this community and communities across this province have been cut out from decision-making for far too long. (laughs) Really, Patrick. I'm running because life is harder with the Liberals. And I am running to be the first Premier from Simcoe County in nearly 100 years. Wow. He's certainly not running for freedom or capitalism, (laughs) which are both necessary conditions to be able to address any greater social or economic ills. And here's here's the sad truth. Conservatives, at least in my lifetime, I've never seen it, will never support capitalism or freedom, which is why they are not on the right side of the political pole. And they're there by choice and by the very bragged-about philosophy of progressivism, which, for heaven's sakes, it's in the name of the party. They're progressive. What did the Minister of Labor say, who's a liberal? We introduce progressive legislation. Well, hello, Patrick Brown. Progressive meet progressive. And yet, Ontarians still talk about each of these two parties as if there's something different between them. There's nothing different between them. And And all their solutions are legislation. Legislation 
is one thing and one thing only. It is prohibition. Period. Some things need to be prohibited, like the initiation of force by some against others, which is the core of what constitutes action by the left, and which is the core of action that fuels socialism, communism, and fascism, and all collectivist variants and mixes of tyrannies. That's where you end up. But the prohibition of the initiation of force is not only a necessary condition for freedom and capitalism to exist, but also to the very essence and definition of civilization itself. I mean, that's what we mean when we say people are civilized, right? You don't use force when you're dealing with other people. You know, we're not, when persuasion fails, you don't use force like the left wing does. You go your own way. You each do your own thing. You have property lines to divide your interests. And in this regard, I, I regret to say that I would say the left is uncivilization. It's uncivilized on every count. And that's why freedom of association, democracy, are disappearing in this province. It's totally power for power's sake, which is fascism. No purpose other than to maintain power. That's certainly Patrick Brown in print. And that's what explains fully everything from minimum wage laws to state power monopolies to green policies, taxi monopolies, all the white elephants they're building, and to so many more of the very policies that create the poverty that the very people who created the poverty say they want to solve. It's, it's a vicious circle. Now, do not make the mistake of thinking that because you still have some personal liberties and choice, that you can walk around free in the street, that that's the same as freedom. You can do that in a lot of communist countries, too. It's generally when you enter the field of production, of creation, and human endeavor, trade, to improve your own condition and the, and the condition of others around you, that you'll discover you're not permitted to do so, and not for reasons related to the protection of life, liberty, or property. Quite the contrary. So sad to say, Ontario is now predominantly a fascist state, complete with its own... I mean, we, we, have a, we even have a minister of anti-racism. My Lord. We have a college of trades, which is a college of trade barriers, preventing people from, from entering into fields of trade and labor on their own. We have a ban of, on freedom of association for political purposes. We have forced taxpayer funding of private organizations called political parties. Scary place, Ontario. I could go on and on, and probably will, as we continue our journey in the right direction again next week. Until then, stay right, be right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Alright, everybody, it's time to hear from our candidates. First up, our incumbent, Frank Gamsmiller. Thank you. No, no. You know what? You all know me. Let's give the new kid a chance. Yes. This, this is a great man. Thank you, fellow Rutherfordonianites. <laughs> anyway, I'm here because of all you people. Men, women... Of course, if I had my way, there'd be, like, a lot more women. <laughs> hey, you know, on any given day, I see maybe one, two women tops. I want to see more women. Everywhere I go, more women. More women in the workplace, yes! Okay. 